Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Belle Tipton of Lynchville, Virginia. Belle will get a marathon decal showing that she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Amber Hunt, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law & Order, Law & Order, Law & Order. It's no ordinary Well, welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspire their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or The Mothership. And today we're looking at Original Recipe Season 19, Episode 17, Anchors Away. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, Rebecca Lavoie. You forgot to mention that I'm a journalist as well, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's important for this episode. It is. It's you are a journalist. You have a perspective. I have on... standards to uphold, you know. <laughs> You're stabbing your coworkers in the back. Let's bring in a real heavyweight journalist, though. Our special guest from the Accused podcast and the Cincinnati Inquirer, Amber Hunt. Hello, Amber. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a podcaster, a newspaper reporter, a journalism fellow, a true crime author, and a college instructor. Did you ever have to work your way up by covering polar bears at the Cincinnati Zoo? You know, I didn't, but I think I would like. I think that'd be a good story. <laughs> and we and we did have a little bit to cover uh, when it came to a gorilla at the Cincinnati Zoo. Yes. Yeah. R.I.P. Harambe. Can we have, yeah, can we have a moment of silence for Harambe? <laughs> Becky, you should pour out a little of your Moscow mule. In honor of Harambe? In honor of Harambe, yes. Yeah. Now, you have spent more than a year looking into the unsolved murder of Elizabeth Andes for your podcast. Have you found that your many hours of watching Law & Order have come in handy? <laughs> So the truth is, I am not an aficionado. I think I've maybe seen a few SVUs, mm -hmm. and that's kind of it. So no, no, not, not that handy. And part of it, I realize after watching this for you guys, it's because I just start to yell at the TV. So yeah, that's why. You know, Amber's podcast, Accused, as you know, was one of my favorite podcasts of 2016. And I'm not alone. Like it made like mm -hmm. a lot of lists, like top podcasts. Here. It's outstanding. But there is a famous moment in it where she actually has to chase a DA through oh, a lobby just to get him to tell her that he's not going to give a comment. And I, I love to imagine in my head that the guy looked just like Cutter, but I don't know if he did. Oh. <laughs> you could definitely get back at all the DAs you want on Law & Order. Exactly. Um, he was a little heavier, just so you know. Okay. 
I am not bitter. I'm not bitter. He's a little heavier, so he was a little slower. Is that what you're saying? You were able to catch up to him? A little slower. Yeah, yeah. I had to narrate it, but I'm like, oh, and you're getting off the elevator now because he, he was really trying to avoid me. Yeah. He still seemed like he was trying to decide between facing the angry, determined reporter or taking the stairs. So now I'm kind of thinking like, now I know why he didn't choose the stairs. Hi. Hi, bosses. You said it. <laughs> I, she didn't. I, I, I did. Now, Amber, of all of the franchises, do you have a favorite cop team? Favorite law and order detective team. No, I loved this episode. So I was all about this. This was so much fun. But because I'm a novice, I don't remember any of their names. So you are going to have to deal with me just making up names for this, them. This was a Lupo and Bernard episode. You mean Elton? <laughs> yes. Uh, Elton and Babyface. Would you like to give the uh, background on why you're calling him Elton? The actor who plays Lupo. somebody fill in the... <laughs> <laughs> He, um, he was in Clueless. I was so excited. I recognized him right away. Clueless came out when I was in high school, and I haven't watched it a whole lot since. But immediately, I was like, Clueless! So I was very excited to see him. And I know Babyface, too. Kevin, he's such a cutie pie. So he <laughs> he's on Blackish now, right? Yeah, yeah. he's yep. great on that yeah. show. That's why we call yeah. these seasons of Law & Order the Blackish years. Oh. Yes. <laughs> At our house. I'm not saying we call them that, like, you know. I guess we have called them that publicly now, but that's what we call them at our house, the Blackish Years. Anthony Anderson is great and forgotten, I think, for his time on Law & Order. Yeah. But I would say that his best role ever was the bad guy in The Shield. Hmm. He was so scary. I didn't know he was even on that show. Oh, yeah. And he was the first person I ever heard use the term popo. Amber, do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite Law & Order District Attorney Prosecutorial Team. Well, team, I don't know about team. I'm in love with Sam. What's his character name? Sam Waterston. Yeah. Do you, do you like that? I'm just Jack McCoy. Oh, Jack McCoy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's cool. We're happy to hold yeah. your hand through this process. Everybody so loves I Jack McCoy. Some of your listeners are probably in my boat and they and they don't listen just because they're fans. They listen because they want to become fans. So I'm going to I'm going to help them walk through that introduction. But yeah, love him. Why, what do you he love about so, him? I like that he sounds drunk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that he was a a little unscrupulous he's like put the whole family in prison you're like oh okay just to get you know a guy to testify he was pretty hardcore well now let's take a look at the first half of this episode law and order season 19 episode 17 anchors away we start with two talking head anchors playing mean girls watching a cliche <laughs> no i mean a, a lightweight blonde reporter doing a hard-hitting live shot from the zoo her name is Dawn, and she finally gets the lead story by getting murdered in her apartment. Hmm. Her computer is also missing. Lupo and Bernard tell Van Buren that until now, Dawn's claim to fame had been a bikini photo scandal. The pictures and the email got leaked to a gossip website. They teach that in journalism school? Uh, yeah, the well-rounded professional. Of course, I treasure my photo of Ed Bradley in a Speedo. <laughs> Well, her boss said she had brains, too. Yes, I think I see them. <laughs> the reporter who received those photos was cool with it, but his wife, not so much. <laughs> the detectives are able to trace those emails back to the computer of female anchor Sue, who was in Washington when they were sent. They learned that aging male anchor Joe was able to steal Sue and Dawn's passwords. Worried about getting forced from his job, he'd been reading the women's emails. 
Well, the joke's on them because Dawn was secretly working on a major story. A tipster let her know Wall Street investor Frederick Matson was committing fraud, but the leaker was killed a week before Dawn. Both anchors are entangled with Matson. Joe had interviewed him in the past, and Sue pulled all of her money out of his fund just as, and cue the story on their own TV station they had no idea about, <laughs> Matson's fund is suddenly shut down by the feds. Lupo and Bernard believe if one of the anchors tipped Matson that the story was coming, he might have arranged for Dawn to get killed. The billionaire denies the murder but has no qualms telling them he's running a Ponzi scheme and they should just bring him in. Well, Law and Order may bring the realism when it comes to crime scenes and stuff like that. but They, they do? Re- <laughs> they, well, they really like making TV reporters look like cartoons. Yeah, because they kind of are. I mean, I, I don't. I know you used to be a TV reporter, and I, I don't want to insult you personally. It's all right. Or our many listeners, I know of two, who, who are, are also TV, TV reporters. <laughs> but it is a stretch to believe that somebody with a hard-hitting tip on like a deeply entrenched Ponzi scheme involving billions of dollars would send that tip to the TV reporter who was reporting on polar bears and not to the New York Times. I don't know. I love the way that they look at TV. I know they make them clownish, but I think it's fun. Yeah, think Amber, it's fun. Amber, I mean, that's like when most whistleblowers decide to come forward. They do pick the pretty girl who was just doing the soft news feature at the end, <laughs> not the Absolutely. actual investigative reporter on that show. I mean, they saw her standing in front of polar bears and they're like, that's who can break this story. <laughs> Dawn, any word on names? Not officially, Joe, but sources tell me the leading candidates are Snowflake and Blizzard. I'll stay on top of the story. You always do. Thank you, Don. Adorable. So, yeah. <laughs> how about the- I also, by the way, I really love how when she was on camera doing her cutesy zoo story, she sounded like a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> uh, I have never, ever heard a TV reporter with that sort of affectation. But afterwards, she sounded all adult. But while she was on TV, she's like, na 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 And now, back to you. Now, what's interesting is that like people who are familiar with the Central Park Zoo, which is where they filmed that uh, little polar bear scene yeah. and then walking through it, the polar bears there, there was a whole thing a few years ago where they were really unhappy and like depressed. And so like the idea that there'd be like a new polar bear in the zoo is being like, a light and fluffy story. Like it didn't quite ring true with the reality. I mean, imagine being a polar bear. Well, I think they've had PTSD when they found out what happened to Dawn. <laughs> oh, poor Dawn, right? Poor yeah. Dawn. <laughs> yeah. Now, look, even as cartoony as they do make this out in real life, when you're on TV in New York, You're at the top of the ziggurat of your career. I mean, there are TV reporters all over the country. That's where they're trying to go. Right. So where were you when you were on TV in New Hampshire? What point in the ziggurat do you think? Oh, way down low. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Market 177. (laughs) And I don't think I'm fooling about that. Amber, what do you think about the banter that they have between the anchors? It reminded me of like Anchorman or the guys on Family Guy. Yeah, it was completely goofball. I loved it. Coming up next, should beauty pageant contestants be tested for drugs? Only if you can administer the tests, right, Joe? Only if you're in the pageant. <laughs> well, if you ask me, Joe, that's a hell of a way to make a living. Uh, what can I tell you, Sue? Maybe he likes broccoli. We'll be right back. <laughs> so <laughs> both of those things are true. Now, Kevin, you used to work on an evening news broadcast, right? Yeah. What I want to ask you is, like, did any of this ring true to you? Seeing the guy walking around with a towel in his shirt, with his makeup, (laughs) the egos, the sort of, like, young people are trying to steal my job. 
did any of this ring true to you and with your experience? I mean, to, to some extent. I mean, it's it's an exaggeration. Played well in this episode with, you know, everybody afraid that the next young face is going to come along and knock them out. Because in some ways, when you're an anchor, that's really all you're delivering. It's how good of a news reader are you versus... Right. You're no longer out there gathering Yeah, you're audio not collecting news. Yeah. But I did really enjoy how when anchor Joe Delaney wanted to point out how popular he was. I have won every award in town. I have an air of authority. When I went into rehab for my cocaine problem, the station got 12,000 letters asking them to bring me back. You know, that proved, well, yes, I'm obviously a top journalist. <laughs> Doesn't because, happen to public radio reporters no. when they go into rehab, I'll tell you. <laughs> no, they're just gone. <laughs> I got to say, Amber, and back me up on this. If you get your wife to completely buy the story that there was nothing going on between you and that TV reporter who was sending you bikini photos, you really need to keep your voice down when you talk to cops in the other room, right? I know, but there, she jumped up so fast. When was the last time you saw it, Don? At a press conference one night last week. We stopped for a drink on the way out. I heard that. You had a drink with that woman? At a press conference. What's drinking have to do with a press conference? A liquor company press conference. When he said, I heard that, and she comes running in, there's like a wife-shaped cloud where she was sitting at the table <laughs> a minute earlier. <laughs> What'd you think of his excuse? Oh, that they were drinking at the um, liquor well, company press conference. press conference. Yeah. Hey, hey, here's a PSA. We're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you actually aren't allowed as a reporter to partake. Yeah. Can you just explain it's, that a little bit? Because that actually stuck out to me, too, was that his excuse was, why would you have a drink with someone at a press conference? And he goes, it was a liquor company press conference, which, by the way, right. super awkward way to say that. Not like it was a Bacardi press conference or it was an absolute press, a liquor company. So can you just explain the journalism rules around that? Well, there are two separate ones I can think of. One is, hey, you're not allowed to drink on the job. And, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the for some one. reason that's frowned upon. And then two, you're not allowed to accept gifts and the partaking of the alcohol could be considered a gift. I've been to scenes where they brought out food and I, I'd been out there all day and I still wouldn't eat just for fear that somebody might think that my coverage might be swayed because I took a piece of pizza. You know? <laughs> yeah, so. that is the rule. Yep, that's still, the rule. I'm still trying to think like what possible newsworthy event could happen at a liquor company. Other that than a TV reporter would that, go to? Yeah, <laughs> other than somebody was killed there. You know, somebody who was maybe George Clooney selling his tequila company. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, but you guys are actually applying real news standards. <laughs> oh, yeah. In, in fairness, not only is this TV, but in fairness. Not only uh, is we, this we, TV. Co we cover a lot of shit lately. Yeah. So. <laughs> now, in this episode, we have a, hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. Actually, we have a, hey, it's that couple. Let's start with Amber. Can you tell me the name of the actor who played Frederick Matson? Uh, you mean Head Vampire from Lost Boys? Uh, yes. Edward Herman. Yes. Big fan. But yes, he is Head Vampire. Tonight. Also, he's Grandpa Gilmore on the Gilmore Girls. Yeah, I mean, he has been, or he had been before he passed away, a Hey, It's That Guy character actor for hey, decades. It's a Ponzi scheme. Old investors were paid with money from new investors. Unfortunately, there's not an infinite supply of new investors. And this is his last of three appearances in the Law & Order universe. I think he's very Ooh. well suited as the billionaire who just sort of like devil may care. Yeah. Yeah, I committed a Ponzi scheme. Why don't you take me in? 
<laughs> I totally, I completely covered this type of story in Cincinnati right when I was hired in 2014. It was eerily similar. So I was like, yeah, he's got this down. <laughs> yeah. Now, can I get the name of the actress who plays Irene Matson? Do I get to say it? Go ahead, Rebecca. That's Jill Eikenberry from L.A. Law, right? That's absolutely correct. <laughs> He's lying. Santana never said anything. I, I sat in every meeting with that man. Fred was afraid of him. He never said anything like that. I had other meetings with him, Irene. Where? When? Who, by the way, I think has been like underutilized as an actress post-L.A. Law. For um, sure. But in this role, if you know anything about the real story, what I hope is the real story, uh, I think well-suited for this role as the fawning... Um, you might be a criminal, but I still love you, wife. Yeah, I I, I like Jill Eikenberry here. I thought she was very effective. She stands by her man when like he a boss. when he has made off with a bunch of money. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah, well, she is definitely known for her eight seasons on L.A. Law, playing next to her real life. Hey, it's that guy husband. Can you name him? Right? Harry Hamlin? No. No. <laughs> oh my God, she Just loved kidding. Harry Hamlin. Just kidding. Amber, do you remember the name of her husband? No, sir. It's Michael Tucker. No. You don't remember the two of two of them together? Nope. Nope? Really? Yeah, no. I don't I mean that was a long time ago. I do have a question for you though. Because uh, no, go ahead, change the subject. It's fine. I get it. <laughs> Sorry. Do no, it's all right. No, no, no. I have a question for you. Yeah. Because I, I do feel like you glossed over an important detail in this episode. Yeah. In, in describing the plot up to this point. Yeah. How the bikini photos got out. Fake Perez Hilton, that whole scene. <laughs> I loved that so much. I can't tell you who sent them to me. I have First Amendment protections. I have a press credential from the police department, your people. Finding a killer outweighs your right to publish anonymous gossip in this authority's opinion. Okay. I don't know who sent them. You, you really don't know? What, what, I mean, what are we fighting for then? The principal. His Kelly Green sweater it, it, it was pretty great <laughs> well i loved how also like he pretended for like one second that like journalistic standards applied to him and he's like oh fuck it whatever I, i'll give you the email address from where i got the photos no no big deal yeah, i don't know that felt realistic to me <laughs> yeah i think he just happens to have his press pass in his pocket <laughs> that you as gave it, me as, yeah as if he goes anywhere with it right Yeah, to police press conferences <laughs> right now security fraud is as we know a federal offense and the office is crawling with FBI agents carrying out boxes. And so here come two city cops, and Matson says, okay, yeah, take me in. <laughs> like, do you think the FBI ever said, hey, whatever happened to the guy we were investigating here? I understand that there is no jurisdictional friction in the real world. Yeah, right? <laughs> just kidding. So, Rebecca, explain, why do you think that he just threw his hands out and said, arrest me? Well, in the moment, all I could think of was that that's actually kind of similar to what happened in the real life case. So I thought it was going there, that like it was sort of like a throwing someone else under the bus scenario. But then about five minutes after that, I kind of thought this is what people do on Law and Order when they think someone else did it. So then I thought that... And then, of course, it turned out to be what? That he was afraid of getting killed and he thought, like, Rikers would be a safe place to go. And then I realized that was a really stupid decision that he made to just, like, put out his hands for the cuffs. Yeah, he'd be safer wearing a gorilla suit at the, at the Cincinnati Zoo. <laughs> 
Never volunteer to go to Rikers. If you learned anything from watching The Night Of on HBO, never volunteer to go to Rikers Island. Although it always seems nice on Law & Order because they're always meeting that little conference room there. <laughs> yes. A lot of light, you yes. know, a couple of sets. Like, oh, Rikers isn't so bad. They've got really nice conference rooms. Uh, complete access to so, lawyers and, you know, yeah. no problems at all. I have to say, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or, or what, but it was during the arrest scene, though, that I figured out the ending. <laughs> oh, really? It was boom, just like that, huh? Yeah, so I've, I've got it in the notes. The wife, question mark, at 22 minutes. <laughs> um, because she's too good an actress. I recognized her face. I didn't watch L.A. Law, but I still recognized her as a really good actress. And she was just standing there slack-jawed. And I'm like, well, they're not using her much. And then I went, oh, it's just like the family guy joke where they have one of these shows on and they've got the credits going at the beginning and Jimmy Smith comes on, and because it's the famous guy's name, Peter's able to go, he did it. <laughs> exactly. So that was it. It was like she was underused, and she's just standing there, and he's giving himself up. The end. That's exactly why we have the, hey, it's that guy, because it's almost always that guy. It is almost always that guy. <laughs> right. I mean, what's also really funny, though, is like one of the things that happened in the first half of this episode is like all these choices that they make, like when they are skirting reality versus fiction. And one of the funny things they do on Law & Order now, they didn't used to do, I think, back in the day when it first came on, it was a little grittier, was that they have to sub in brands for other brands. Like they're at a point now where they can't just say like Google. So right, it was Geeker Seeker or something Se- like that. Seeker Geeker. <laughs> when they're looking for like clips of him, Madsen giving uh-huh. interviews on the TV, let's just go to Seeker Geeker and find that out. Okay. It's like that was a funny detail that I, that was too funny and stuck out a little too much during this investigative part of the episode. I love that. I was like, Elton, thank you for showing me how to Google. <laughs> on Seeker Geeker. <laughs> Again, these are before they had like the really cool PowerPoints right. over on SVU. There were no or, PowerPoints. Yeah, everything was still done by hand. What was funny, though, was that like the securities fraud is a complicated crime, right? Yeah. SVU would definitely have some sort of visual. It would be like, you know, Rollins would be standing up there pushing the button as it was like, what happens is he gets in new people and takes their money and then he gives it to the old people who've been investing with him for years. There's a bunch of old people that pop up on the screen. Yeah, they didn't insult our intelligence. They just did a quick throwaway line and we were supposed to get it and I liked that. I actually wrote it down because that line that Edward Herman gives could be boilerplate language in any news story about what a Ponzi scheme is. Quote, old investors were paid with money from new investors. Unfortunately, there's not an infinite supply of new investors. <laughs> Done. Like, thank you. Do you know how many times I've had to sit there and struggle to figure out how to explain what a po- That was it. There thank you, you, Edward Herman. The RIP. more you know. And the TV audience was so much happier for finding out now exactly what that was. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, writing team at Law & Order. Yeah, that was way easier than I think the one that they did with the Martha Stewart takeoff where they had to explain oh like a stop loss and it was just... Ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It, we talked about know that on the show. I had, Joe, I had no fucking idea what happened on that in that crime. I had no idea. <laughs> Zero idea. But Ponzi scheme, got it. <laughs> at Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. 
When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content. Like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, The Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Now let's take a look at the second half of the episode. Even though it's actually a federal crime, Matson is arraigned for fraud and doesn't even ask for bail. Cutter thinks he's too eager, so he and Ruberosa look over his client list. Among them is Levon Santana, a Colombian drug cartel leader with a professional Manhattan office. <laughs> the offices of Levon <laughs> Santana. <laughs> Matson told Santana about Dawn's story and the tipster, whose name is Vince. McCoy and company can't get Matson to say anything about the murder, so they go after his his wife and daughter. You need Madsen's testimony? Yes. Where's his soft spot? What does he care about? He's worried about his family. He wants us to protect them. I have a better idea. Arrest them. Then, if he gives you what you need, let them go. Yeah, Madsen swears they had no idea what was really going on. You believe that? Not necessarily, but there's no evidence against them. Find some. When booking her as an accessory to the fraud, the cops match Irene Matson's fingerprints to Dawn's apartment and her cell phone to the block at the time of the killing. The DA say Joe the anchor can be charged with murder if he tipped off Matson. He says his career would be ruined if he revealed the conversation, but once Sue finds out her co-anchor is under suspicion, Joe decides he'll wipe off the Noxzema one last time <laughs> and admit he tipped Matson that the story was coming. Now, to protect his wife, Matson says Santana killed Dawn as well as Vince, and he'll testify against the drug lord. Irene knows that this will certainly get her husband killed, so she confesses to going to Dawn's house to kill the story, but instead killed the reporter. Now, I got to say, of course, how classy of a drug dealer do you have to be to work out of Midtown? Yeah, and to have a title card in Law and Order that says, The Offices of. I mean, when, <laughs> it's, it's true. When you cut to the offices, they actually do look like a scene from like Scarface and like what a drug cartel person would have. But not just an office. Office says. That yes, says something about who you are. Am I wrong, Amber? No, I think he was very accomplished and a funny, funny guy. He was quite the comedian. I didn't kill anybody, but I would love to strangle Madsen. He was offended by being figure accused. Figure of speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really funny. And like earlier in the episode, we saw that, that guy Vince Decker, the other person involved who was also murdered. Mm -hmm. I don't really quite exactly remember how that fit together. There's like that funny little moment where Bernard is like, oh, this guy and pulls out like a school yeah. portrait. <laughs> Elton yeah. is like, oh, I, I recognize this name. And it's right over here in this other stack of paper right at my desk. And then Babyface pulls out a photo because it's right on top of his stack too that's amazing and it looks like a sears portrait photo yeah because usually that you know that's what we carry around that's what us. cops have when they're putting their files together it's a yeah. Sears portrait photo yeah can somebody go down to photo mat and get me all the headshots that i need for this file i'll never be able to figure out who steve and vince are if i can't put the two of them together <laughs> I need their organizational skills, though. I'm I'm sleeping in a stack of trial transcripts. I have no idea how they keep everything neat on their desks. Yeah, no kidding. Now, McCoy wants to go after Matson's family, which is how we take down Irene. 
But the daughter is such an afterthought oh, I know. that in the credits, she is literally listed as Miss Matson. I know. Her whole role is standing there. They didn't even give her a first name. She just looks adoringly at her parents. And then, like, at the end when there actually is a scene with her, which is, like, a pre-credits, like, it's so sad. Like, I don't know where else to go. I'm being threatened. There have been phone calls, a note to my apartment. People blame me for what my father did. Maybe you should get out of town. To where? I don't have any money. I invested in my father's hedge fund. I actually loved that. I loved it. (laughs) Tell me why. It's true because that case that I covered in Cincinnati, he devastated his whole family and they're victimized by what is done by the guy running the scheme. So I thought it was very true to life. It is true to life. I mean, that's what the person at the heart of the from the headlines part of this. Also, you know, there was a lot of like fallout there, too. It also made me think of like certain recent events we've read in the news about certain powerful people maybe throwing their children under the bus. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. No, no, no. I'm not, of course, commenting on anything that you know we don't really know the facts around. But there is sort of like... That thing of like, this is what I'm doing, and you'll all adore me, and also you could get thrown under the bus at any moment, but you will do it gracefully, and you will still love me while you are being rolled under the tires. That does seem to be like the pattern here, right? Yeah, and I love that the anchor, Sue, had enough heads up that she pulls out her money, but the poor daughter didn't get to pull out her money before everything collapsed. I loved Anchor Sue. I thought Anchor Sue was like feisty as all get up. First of all, she had a cleavage situation that was completely inappropriate for a television anchor, which... Or completely appropriate. Or completely appropriate. And by the way, I'm not judging either way because that's feminist bullshit to sort of say what someone should or should not wear. But... I loved that she and Joe had that hate each other thing. It was sort of like the Katie Couric, Brian Gumble vibe that they had <laughs> when they hosted, co-hosted the Today Show that like they were good because you could tell that behind the scenes they just did not want to talk. You despicable, washed up haircut. Yeah, like you would have known what to do with a real story anyway. Like that made that it was, good. It was phenomenal. I have never heard washed up haircut used as an insult. (laughs) That was the best. I mean, she wasn't talking about his haircut. She called him a haircut. I haven't heard that before. And then the retort was, you've got too much Botox on the brain. (laughs) It's like, oh, guys, just hug. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, what's so funny about that whole thing with the two, quote, journalists in the story, and I'm sorry, because I know that it hurts your heart when I make fun of TV. Yeah, they're not. No, it's all right. Like, there is the scene that sort of speaks to how law and order treats TV journalists. And by Mm -hmm. the way, I don't think they've ever really... They sort of have the a thing with the media, like cops versus the media, but they've never really done a story about like a newspaper investigation. It's always like TV people, right? And mm-hmm. they, they hate them. Mm-hmm. And there's this amazing scene where you have a guy wearing a towel around his neck because he's got like makeup on and doesn't want to mess up like his fancy shirt or whatever. And while wearing that towel, cites his journalistic privilege to not reveal a source when it was actually he that called that person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like not a source at all. It was insane and so funny. And then you had Sue, they're questioning her, and she's just like trying to get a scoop on her guy. Yeah. It was great. It was great. Amber, did you love that too? So I thought it was hilarious, but there is so much fake news 
hoopla going around that I was like, don't misuse journalistic privilege. Don't go there. <laughs> like, that is such a, that's not how it works. We don't we don't get to obstruct criminal investigations, what? especially not when you were the one providing the information to the source. It's not quite right. But it was very telling for their characters. You're a reporter in Ohio, and Ohio has a conditional shield law, but it's very strong in New York. Their press shield law. The anchor is correct that he can't be held in contempt by the state for refusing to name his source, but it only applies to confidential information a reporter has received. It doesn't cover information the reporter may have volunteered the other way to the source. Exactly. So it's not like he's a priest going around. Ah, well, that's privilege. I can't tell you what. He's not a reporter. Like that's the thing. It's like calling him a journalist a reporter. It's just like and and no, it's covered in the law. I'm sure specifically, that it's specifically yeah, yeah, covered, yeah, yeah. but yeah. like he's sitting there at his desk and all these things with that giant Emmy like uh-huh. right behind him, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And what does he cite when he decides to step down that what he was once like a, a conflict reporter? Oh, yeah. Right? Right. He, he won an award for the, the <laughs> evacuation of Saigon. And I'm oh, still that's thinking. Right. It was Saigon. Yeah. I'm thinking like, no, still 30 years ago, it was still the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> they evacuated Saigon years ago. In fact, he was about to go into rehab. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he was getting ready for rehab immediately. My favorite part was the wide-eyed schoolboy DA. Um, when Cutter? the When the anchor Joe comes in and he says, do you understand what you're asking of me? And the DA replies, his eyes, they're impressively big. And he just says, yes, to do the right thing. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful. It was it was almost Do the right thing. What are you talking about? You know, that story is a pretty big deal. He cites an important story, but he never harkens back to the ambition and the journalistic integrity that I assume had to go along with that story. It's all about career instead of the pursuit of truth. Oh, truth. I mean, come on. I know, I know. But, you know, it's like, why bring up a story that weighty if you're not going to... He says, you know, at the end, I did think it was a nice line. He says, uh, I already missed the news. But, you know, give me a little more than that, because all he's talking about is how he doesn't like co-hosting with blondes in low-cut shirts or something. Happy talk with morons in low-cut dresses. Yeah, well, I mean, Law & Order often has, you know, some sort of, like, moral proclamation. It usually comes, like, at closing arguments in a trial. But I think this is one where they're making a statement about news. And he is speaking on behalf of what the idealistic journalist would think, that I'm here to do hard news and to inform the public, and now I'm just reduced to... All of these fluff stories and having to sit next to pretty people for the sake of them being pretty. Right. But I I don't want to get like too deep on like the journalism thing for a second. (laughs) But the interesting thing to me about this, and I think that Amber is a good person to talk to about this, is that what he does with Madsen, where he tips him off about the incoming story. Mm hmm. He's really just trying to preserve his relationship with Madsen because he's the one who got to interview him for that like finance segment, right? Like, you're the Wizard of Wall Street. Tell us about blah, 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 blah. He wants to preserve that relationship for access, right? Right, right. And I do think there is a problem that probably affects TV people more than newspaper people and more than radio people about access because if you do a radio story or a print story and you can't get Madsen... You can talk to somebody close to Madsen or whatever, and it's like what it looks like on camera 
doesn't matter as much, right? It's about getting the right voice and the right person. And it's something that I think that a reporter like Amber would be like, yes, yeah, screw that. I don't care about access. Like, tell me what happened. And if you if you say no comment, like, I'm going to say that you said that. And she would not, you would not do anything like that to preserve a source. Right, Amber? Oh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> my colleague is about to write a bad story about you. FYI. Oh, my. No, that's like, I'm pretty sure that's like rule number three in our. <laughs> After you, don't be you, drunk no. at the job. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't be drunk. Don't take gifts. Don't sell out your colleagues and compromise your journalistic integrity. You must have some great motivational posters set up around the newsroom that say all these things. Right? <laughs> yes. Most of them have kittens and trees. Now, Amber, I w- you don't have to name names. All right. But I just want you to think about the coworker that you hate the most. All right. How excited would you be to get a tip that they're under investigation for murder? I'm no fun. I, I would be mortified. I'd be so sad for them. <laughs> I'm too much of an empath. I guess you just so. don't hate them that much. She's nicer than I, me. Well, she is. I mean, there are kids involved. <laughs> 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 Do you know, though, I had to report on a coworker who stabbed her boyfriend once. <gasps> oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. M-G. Yeah, um, he lived, but it was like a millimeter from something vital. And yeah, so it's it's actually pretty traumatizing. We weren't close, but, you know, it was still somebody I knew. <laughs> and did you just go right for the, I need a quote, or like, how you, did you start with any, like, how you doing, this is really tough, uh, but do you mind if I take some notes? <laughs> Pretty much. You know, she didn't grant me an interview. I can't imagine why. Oh, yeah. I could just see you, like, Dustin Hoffman in All the President's Men just sitting there asking for coffee and writing on napkins the whole time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just keep keep going, keep going. Tell me more about that murder you almost committed. Rebecca, what did you think about the way the revelations came out about what actually happened? Well, I think it's always fun when the tactics of the investigators or prosecutors in law and order include, let's get everyone in the same room and hash this out. (laughs) What made it more fun in this instance is that we know that Madsen, a.k.a. Grandpa Gilmore, is at Rikers. And yet somehow... He is wearing a suit in an interrogation room in the police station when all of these revelations come out. So that was a super fun detail. He's got cufflinks, though, that could be used as shivs, too, as well. It's like, what are they giving him that stuff for? Yeah, it was like a whole, like, funny, whatever. Anyway, but then that whole scene where it's, like, so, you know, Ruberosa says that she's actually, like, personally touched by how much he and the wife love each other. And there's that whole push-pull where they're in that scene when they're like throwing out what they know and it's clear they're going in the direction that the wife did it. Mm-hmm. I am not going to let them send you to prison. Oh, Freddie. No. For the rest of your life, Irene. I can't stand to think about that. So you'd rather be dead? <laughs> I went to see that girl. I knew what she was doing. We only needed a little more time. There were some Arabs that were wanting to invest. I offered her money. She didn't want money. She just wanted a story. She kept asking me questions. I was not there to answer questions. She wouldn't listen to reason. She wanted to destroy us, Freddie. You and me. After 30 years, I I couldn't let that happen. But they're just like, no, 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 honey. You can't. No, you can't. No, all I could think of is like hashtag relationship goals, right? right. It was romantic. <laughs> it was like the worst gif of the Magi take off ever. No, you go to prison for murder. No, no. you go to prison for murder. <laughs> all right, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. What could it be? <laughs> you think you know who did it? You think you know who did it? But 
don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. Although this episode has shades of the infamous Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, the soapy plot points were inspired by the bad behaviour of some Philadelphia TV personalities. <gasps> In 2003, <laughs> Alicia Lane and Larry Menti became the lead anchors on KWY. Lane first made the tabloids after emailing bikini photos of herself to an NFL sportscaster. They were intercepted by his wife, who made them public. Lane then began a torrid affair with her married co-anchor. Menti said the relationship soon turned acrimonious, with Lane doing all she could to get him fired. During this time, Menti broke into Lane's computer, spied on her emails and sent them to other reporters. In 2007, Lane was back in trouble after assaulting a female New York police officer during a taxicab road rage incident. The TV station fired her. Soon after, Menti was arrested for illegally accessing Lane's computer. He was sentenced to six months house arrest. Alicia Lane sued CBS, saying they never investigated her complaints about the emails. But a judge threw out that suit, saying she wiped her computer clean, destroying evidence. Her civil suit with Larry Menti was settled in January 2017 after the disgraced anchor offered a public apology. I am shocked right now. I'm shocked. I am too. Because I thought this was about Bernie Madoff. I had no idea that it was actually the reporter stuff that was the rip from the headline stuff. Well, the Madoff stuff obviously is, but they put together two great stories. It was stories. a mashup. Everybody knows Madoff, but you did not think that that stuff actually happened with those reporters. No. And that's <laughs> Unless pretty you live in on the nose. Yeah, pretty on the nose. <laughs> well, we had just watched that Madoff thing on HBO. What was that the called? Wizard of Lies. Wizard of Lies. And like, I thought that the Madoff story was very, it was very true to what actually happened because Madoff did actually capitulate immediately when he was confronted by the FBI. And he sort of like the whole thing just crumbled very quickly. He did actually kind of quasi throw his kids under the bus. Uh-huh. And he did actually have this like devoted wife who just was sort of like, right. I thought that was the beef and potatoes. I am impressed, Kevin Flynn. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's look at the Madoff part of the storyline first. There was a sense in New York, especially, that Madoff was too quick to cop to the scheme and that his family was more involved than they said they were. We see little bits of this in the episode where, I mean, at the very end, the daughter, who has no first name, <laughs> is, is, is getting harassed by people. So, Amber, did this part really strike you like it was ripped from the headlines? I thought it was all made off. I was just waiting for Kevin Bacon to show up. I had no idea <laughs> that the rest of it was actually ripped, too. So that's pretty exciting. And now I'm going to end up going down a rabbit hole on these anchors. So thanks for ruining my afternoon. <laughs> I'm really glad that you mentioned Kevin Bacon, because what I think of Madoff, I always also think of Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick. You know, even though like all these like nice middle class people were ripped off, I always remember that like she had to go back and start acting again. And so did he because, like, they lost all their money with Bernie Madoff. Damn it, I wanted I know, to... Clearly, they're the biggest victims, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the people who were able to find multi-million dollar jobs afterwards. Exactly. And Steven Spielberg lost all that money. And you're like, oh, how is he going to get by? <laughs> E.T. Oh, that's right, two? But there was a Steven reference in this episode. There was. He, they, yeah, they asked um, uh, Head Vampire if, um, if he knew a Steven because Don's tipster went by the name Steven and he said, well, I know Steven Spielberg. He's in my fund or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the best question about a Ponzi scheme is, would you even know you were in one? 
Right. It's really tricky. And until it's uncovered, it's really hard to tell that you've gotten yourself in trouble, especially because the good ones will send you monthly statements. And maybe sometimes you'll even look like you're losing a little bit, which, you know, adds to the authenticity. But then the next month you might be up. And so everything's okay. They are little devils, the guys who run these. Now, can I go back to the anchors? Tell you a little more about what actually happened. Please. All right. I'm dying to know. So Menti, the the male anchor, says that she was the aggressor, that she seduced him by inviting him to her apartment and taking her clothes off. And that once while he was driving in the car with her, she straddled him in passion. That sounds like something that somebody would say when they were trying to convince. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know about who seduced who or whatever. But isn't it juicy AF? It is so juicy. And the whole thing where the wife published the emails, but made them public. (laughs) Now, in this episode, the wife was savage. I loved when she did the whole thing where she responded to Dawn Prescott and she was like, you may think you're this, but like, stay away from my... It's like savage. And the way that she came running into the room when she was like, I mean, I loved that stuff. But like Amber... I need to know more. I need. I don't care who was the aggressor. All I need. I just need to know more. Well, Amber. Apparently, what the two anchors would do is they would text each other while they were on the set a code that meant "I love you." You know, just like oh, 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 that's sweet, right? (laughs) That's adorable. I know what that. Now we go to Bob for the uh, the weather forecast. Beep 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 beep. beep. Were they texting four five nine? Something like that. Yeah. 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 That actually has happened before, where spouses have caught each other cheating by seeing four five nine on text messages, because that's like the letters for I L Y. That's text code for I love you. F Y I. Oh, you got that, Amber? Um. Yes. Making note. It's, don't look at my phone right go, now. Go back. I don't want you to see all the four, five, nines that are there. No, Gotta delete all that stuff. JK. Hey, you know what? I was JK, actually LOL four, five, nine. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually unaware that you could be criminally charged for breaking into someone's email account. Yeah, you can. You know why? Why? Anything relating to email or the internet is a federal crime because you're basically crossing state lines. Even if I break into your email, Kevin, uh-huh. uh, you have that what? email has trans. Yes, you're, you're like on yeah. AOL because you're like an old man, like who's like a million years old and you have your email <laughs> on, on AOL. So when I go into your email account, even I'm sitting right next to you, what I'm actually doing is crossing a state line uh-huh. and then, you know, going maybe to space or maybe going to some server in California or Wyoming or whatever and then coming back. So, yeah, it's not something you're allowed to do. And it's also a federal crime, which I don't think people realize that anything they do on the Internet, they send somebody a threatening text. That's not just a threat, like, in your town. That's actually, like, potentially a federal crime. Amber, where, was this on your radar? Yeah, yeah. No, this is a big <laughs> deal. But I love that I thought it was a little interesting that Anchor Joe apparently had some sophisticated setup. to <laughs> Capture key Because strokes. he didn't look like he was acting as though, you know, oh, I'm on my way out. I'm getting older and they're bringing in all these. But he knew how to spy on people's emails. So that was pretty impressive. He was sophisticated enough to be able to use a keystroke capture to get their passwords and then he printed off hard copies of oh, yes. all of the emails. Which, and here they are in a folder, officer. Which he kept right in the top drawer of his desk. I loved it. Not locked. And one of the women had been murdered. And he's like, oh, they're right here, all these emails that I was illicitly obtaining. I love that. Go. I love the whole thing about it. I love that Sue 
just thought she had some virus, so she just stopped using her computer. I'm sorry. What is your job that you can just like <laughs> literally just decide like I'm not going to use my computer anymore? She's an anchor. She just reads what <laughs> other people write for her. Now that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our special guest Amber Hunt. Amber, where can our listeners follow you online? Oh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Reporter Amber. The Accused Podcast is on Facebook. We're on Twitter too. We're all over the place. And Rebecca Lavoy, how can listeners follow you? They can find me as one of the loyal followers of Accused Podcast and Amber Hunt. <laughs> because, by the way, Accused is one of the best true crime podcasts I've ever heard. If our listeners haven't heard it, you've been under a rock. Go listen. But I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Or you can follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. And if you've been listening carefully, yes, I've been giving the wrong Instagram account this whole time. <laughs> Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in, in Crime, crime Media. media.